This is an ABC podcast. I asked them to treat the camera as the patient, so we had to put the camera under the fabric when we were filming it for some some of the scenes, and I was hiding under the fabric too to have control. I remember it was 45 degrees, like hot, and the islands are in general very hot, and they were laughing at me. They were like, you're mad, you're most probably possessed too, and you don't know it. (laughs) Picture this, people possessed by the wind on an island haunted by slavery. And a woman who painted mental illness in an era dominated by modernist men. She began a series of paintings that were reflections of her experiences at the hospital. And they're based on scenes that she witnessed there and that remained very firmly in her mind. That's coming up on The Art Show with me, Daniel Browning. This week, I'm joining you from Arakaw country on the far north coast of New South Wales, where we say jingiwala, hello. Context is everything, except when you're the collage artist, David Noonan. David finds intriguing black and white images from old books, photos of people performing in avant-garde theatre or costume parties from a different era, and he pastes these over an unrelated background, an empty building or delicate textured fabric, for instance. The result is a haunting collage of interesting-looking folk pursuing an unknown purpose, layered with a sense of the familiar. Not unlike a vivid, nostalgic dream whose meaning will change depending on the viewer. And that's you. David remakes his collages as large screen prints, sometimes tapestries, and now film. The musician Warren Ellis is a friend, and he's composed music for it. David's latest Australian solo show is called Only When It's Cloudless, and I spoke to him from the Tarawara Museum of Art in Victoria, just outside Melbourne. Thank you. Good to be here. David, welcome back to Australia and to the art show. Tell me about your 16mm film. It's called Mnemosyne, who was the Greek goddess of memory. How did that film come about? The way in which I made, I started. I wanted to make a film that was very much like a collage. Um, so, it's, it, I mean, like all my work really is is, is collage based. But the so the camera kind of pans very slowly over various images on one sort of linear sort of pan right to left. I wanted to make it very kind of in in house and very sort of DIY. And so I made it with my assistant Mune, and we we sort of use very kind of rudimentary kind of methods, filmic methods, and. I also was quite, I, I really wanted to make something that wasn't, had no special effects as such. So everything was in camera and, you know, the nature of the Bolex camera is you, it's, it's clockwork and, you know, you have about 30 seconds per shot. And that was somehow the limitations of the way in which I structured the film, shooting it, everything through a fish tank, through water. And then I put inks and dyes in the water, to create these sort of plumes of sort of moving pigments and things that sort of. Um, either reveal or kind of, um, or you know, become opaque over the images. So th- there's a kind of, it was quite a simple kind of premise in a way, but it, it it sort of that's what kind of drove the actual film, if that makes sense. Memory obviously is one of those things that tri- that's triggered uh, by your work. I experience uh, kind of a, a lost memory, a repressed memory, even sometimes. But there's also a sense of nostalgia and of, of ritual. 
What kind of pictures, though, are you drawn to in everyday life? What are the things that really capture your eye, uh, say, when you're looking for collage material? Um, it's a good question. I mean, it, it's something, it's a bit inexplicable. It's some, often I don't quite know what I'm looking for, but it just has to sort of somehow speak to me or kind of move me in some way or, or kind of intrigue me. And I, I often just, I often collect different things from all these different sources and kind of categorise them and then often an image can be dormant for many many years and then another image that i'll find will suddenly activate it or they'll want to be together or and they become something else whether it's a collage or um or in the film for instance each imagery the images that follow from the next one from the next the next is really driven by my kind of i guess almost emotive response to them and but also highly aesthetic and formal as well so the decisions are always kind of a, a whole la many layers of different kind of aesthetics and emotion, I guess, in a way. And that's the beauty of collage. I mean, juxtaposition is really one of the mediums of, of, of a collagist, <laughs> putting things side by side and seeing how they relate or how they don't relate. I'm really fascinated with that kind of idea of juxtaposition in your work. Yeah, I mean, there's a section of the exhibition called, the, it's the Vista Room, which is a corridor and a, in which I put a lot of smaller works and collage works um, that kind of, and many of them are what I call arrangement collages, whereby rather than images being superimposed, they're put in sort of dialogue with one another. So there's a conversation between the images. Um, and often they're figurative images in, in conversation with an abstract image. So, and sometimes they create, they sort of form what might look, appear to be narratives, and other times they don't. But again, they're decisions that get made at the time and, you know, they are often quite intuitive decisions, that, you know, when I'm making these things and I kind of often create conditions in which I can make works. The film Nemozony features music by Warren Ellis, uh, of course, from the, from the band The Dirty Three, and it creates a, a, quite a haunting ethereal effect. Did the music come first or, or, or the images? Uh, they seem to fit so beautifully together. I've known Warren since I was a child and we actually wanted to do something musical with Warren and then, so when I knew that I was making the film or when I began making it I asked him if he'd you know considered doing the composition for it and he just said yes and he sent me a bunch of stuff um, of ideas that he just put down in the studio and maybe 14 12 or 14 tracks something like that um, and I deliberately didn't listen to any of them um, I just put them away and then started the film and it's a, it, the film itself, making it, is a very slow process. So, you know, um, by the time I had, say, three or four minutes worth of footage, I kind of edited it together and then I started listening. Then I listened to Warren's, um, you know, n his, well, I guess he called them notes. And then there was one, one piece that leapt out at me and completely um, felt like it really belonged to the, what I was doing or attempting to do. And it sort of became the holding track as, as I developed the piece. Um, I kept just that track. It's, very, it's a very short piece, but looping over the, over the imagery and it just fitted. And so in the end, we discussed whether he would actually like score the film as such, but we decided that it wasn't, it had worked as it, as that as it was. Warren almost gave me a, a group of things to choose from, um, almost like choosing images, perhaps. Now, the film we're talking about, Nemozny, has colour, but you're known for your black and white. 
I'm curious, uh, was there, uh, when did your palette become monochrome? Um, probably, I don't know, 25 years ago or something like that. I, I think it slowly just seeped out or became desaturated and the monochrome became, I mean, even in my first, like my first exhibition at Gertrude Street back in like the 90s, the, the show was entirely monochrome paintings. Um, so I th- I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but it's always pretty much been there ever since, even, even since art school, actually. Now, you grew up in Ballarat in country Victoria and you studied at the Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne. Does Ballarat um, have an influence on your work? Can we find it anywhere in your work? I, I think it really does, actually. Um, and the older I get, the more I feel that it was a very formative time because I actually I went to art school in Ballarat um, and I did a, a post-grad at PCA afterwards. But, you know, I think the the weather and the kind of the atmosphere of the town itself really kind of found its way into my aesthetic very early on. And even if you look at my, my work from art school, it has a kind of very, it's quite dark, it's quite gothic. And I think I was listening to a lot of post-punk music and, you know, Nick Cave and, you know, all sorts of musicians. And also I didn't fit into the to Ballarat. It was quite a aggressive kind of culture. And, you know, so we my friends and I formed a sort of little subculture, I guess. And there was in, within that, we had to kind of create our own sort of imaginary world that we wanted to inhabit that wasn't really available to us. So we, it was constructed. Um, and most of my friends were musicians and, and actors and things. And I think that has influenced some of my interests in the themes in my work, like subcultures and, and, and yeah, theatre and music and so on. Yeah, I guess if we don't like the world we're inhabiting, we can create one if we're creative. I love, I love the drama and the chiaroscuro of, of, of monochrome. You know, you can create such deep darks and, 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 and great lights. I think colour just kind of can sometimes get in the way of a good picture. I, yeah, and I think also like a lot of my work um, has used found imagery and um, there's something about sort of desaturating that or, or it actually originating as in black and white that's sort of it's kind of it is a ready-made in a way often um and in in some ways the film is is still a black and white film but it has the color in it becomes it almost dyes the images into these duotones so um and actually duotones i think are sort of are also a form of monochrome in a way is just using color and black as you kind of alluded to there you you, you started as a painter uh, and you became very accomplished uh, at painting. So, did you? When did you, did you kind of reach uh, the end of your journey with painting? Um, and and if so, why? Yeah, I, 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 around two thousand and five or six, I was making a lot of gouaches and bleach paintings. The bleach paintings, again, are kind of a form of monochrome because using bleach to take the pigment out of black fabric. So. But I, I was setting, I was sort of finding collaging images together to paint. So, for instance, I might have a background from a photographer, or I might, and then I might photograph someone, or I might find an image, and and use that. So, I, I was already sort of using collage in the paintings themselves, um, and in in the end, it became more interesting for me to just use the the actual source material rather than trying to um, push it through another process. And that's when I, I moved to London and I didn't for a while have a studio and that's when I started making screen prints actually. And then that, that sort of became another kind of aspect to my practice, I guess. 
Yeah, I love the mechanistic, you know, nature of screen. I was also drawn to screen printing when I, when, I, when I was at art college. I love this idea of reproducing something endlessly, a bit kind of Warholian. Um, but I was also drawn to screen printing because the image was already there that I wanted to use. It, I'd found it in a book and I couldn't possibly paint it or draw it. It, it, was, already, it was already done. So I'm, I'm totally, I'm down with what you're, what, you're, what you're talking about. But can we find links in your work uh, to, to painting? Is there... Are there any traces of, of David Noonan, the painter? I mean, I've never, I've never sort of departed from the, the way in which I compose pictures, and they're very quite formal, I guess, in many ways, and they often really refer to the language of painting in terms of, you know, composition and so on. But there's lots of references to painting in the collages. In fact, a lot of the collages, aspects of them are, in fact, paintings, or um, um, particularly in the arrangement collages. But... They have a certain sort of painterly quality to them, I think. And, and you know, you we were talking about Warhol earlier. Um, I, I kind of ha- almost did the opposite to Warhol in that all my images, they're always unique. So I use this sort of process of, of mass reproduction, but always reduce it down to a single piece. So, that, um, so it's sort of reversing that in some ways. Warhol in reverse. <laughs> yeah. And also I think, I mean, my work doesn't, I don't think it reproduces particularly well because often the surfaces are very active, so they're, they're quite heavily collaged or, you know, kind of layered, um, which when they're photographed, they kind of, it flattens out again. But so they're often better, you know, better to see them in, in the real life. But yeah, so I'm interested in surface and I think that's, that's, a, that's a real hangover from painting as well or a reference to painting. Can we talk a little bit about subject matter and, and the theatre and performance is, is always coming up in your images, but they're not of people that we know. How do you go about finding uh, these source images? So the, the theatrical imagery, I often when in the paintings, even the earlier paintings, I was always setting up these kind of theatrical situations. Or, And then when I started looking at imagery from the theatre, particularly from the sort of 60s and 70s and 80s, like often these avant-garde productions, always there was they were almost like this ready-made of kind of bizarre scenarios and lighting situations and mise-en-scene, you know, interesting set design and kind of costume and makeup. And so there's already a kind of sense of drama and also kind of transformation and that these scenarios were kind of highly constructed, but at the same time, very, just very evocative. And, and I wasn't so much interested in theatre as in terms of the performance, but more the residue of the performance or the, you know, or even the moments, often the moments between performances. So often in, in my imagery, you might see people prepare, preparing for a performance, pe- applying makeup or dressing or in a state of kind of introspection. All right, now let's take a walk through the gallery. We're standing in front of my largest tapestry to date, um, it was important for this to be bit really large because I wanted the figures that it looks like there's a stage with these figure, these dancers lying on on the ground looking up and so I wanted to make the piece sort of have the feel like a stage set that makes sense so the background is this sort of abstract brushstroke kind of almost an expressionistic painting which could also be the backdrop of the actual performance itself on the one hand, the images are clearly cut out and stuck over the top as a, as a collage and almost deliberately leaving the sort of scissor marks in so you can get that sense of separation. But it also that 
they also become one as well. So that the, the, the two diverse scenes merge into one image. When I was talking about the distinct sections of the show in, in terms of periods of work, this bay, for instance, is a is taken from a, a group of works like, called Lead Light, and they consist of portraits of various people in states of kind of different types of makeup. And I, actually, for this group of works, I went to Berlin and to specifically look at antiquarian bookshops because I remember I went I went years ago and I found there was just I'd never seen so many, you know, amazing second-hand bookshops. But when I went this time, I think this was in about 2014 or 15, most of them had closed or they were open for two hours a week. Or, But it became this kind of quest of trudging through the city to, to these shops. And I kind of wanted to make that, that trip the sort of something had to come from it. And that particular image was one that, that really jumped out. I mean, it's a woman with this quite severe haircut with black eye makeup it looks as if it's been airbrushed across her face and it kind of almost that image really spoke to me of what of Berlin it sort of almost has that kind of Weimar kind of feel but also that kind of 80s punk period as well and I also found in a bookshop um, these amazing images of contemporary lead light from the sort of 80s or 90s and that became the theme so it, the lead light images are quite sort of unusual lead light. They're not like what you'd normally see in a house, but they're more like craft or kind of high art lead light, if you like. Um, that became a theme whereby the lead, the, the, the lead light image, which is sort of an abstract image, is laid over the portrait and then I collage that accordingly. So, And then they become almost like windows. Now, you've lived in London for, uh, for over 15 years. When you moved there, what did it offer that perhaps Australia couldn't? I mean, I'm, ter- I'm talking in terms of your professional career. When I moved, it was at a particular time that there was a lot happening in, in, in London in the, in the East End and the younger gallery. There's a whole group of younger galleries coming up and it was, a pre- it was an interesting, kind of exciting time. Freeze had just started as well, so London was becoming quite a focus. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I'd already had, I'd had a connection to the city um, because I'd lived there when, after I finished art school for a few years. So it wasn't such a big thing to go back. And, and I think, I mean, I was in my early 30s and thought, you know, I wanted to try another life, I guess. Um, and I had a gallery in London too, which represented me. And, that, that, and also, you know, because I'd lived there, I had a sort of infrastructure. So it kind of, and then we, my wife and I, Renee So, who's an, also an artist, but we decided it was, it suited our lifestyle a lot. And there was lots of opportunities and it was very connected internationally. So it kind of just happened in a way. Now, David Noonan, what's, what is next for you? This, this extraordinary exhibition at Tarawara, but what's, uh, what are you working on at the moment? It feels like at the moment I've kind of come to the end of something. It's like I've worked on a really large sculptural installation, the film. I feel like it's time now to go back to the studio and really kind of regroup and I mean, I, I do want to make some more wall works, like collage pieces, and I've, ha- I've got things I'd like to work on, but it's good. I don't have that much coming up, which is really nice, so I can sort of... It's, it's a time for experimentation. Back to the studio with you, young man. Thank you so much for being my guest here on The Art Show, David. Thanks for having me. David Noonan, his solo show, Only When It's Cloudless, is on at the Tarawara Museum of Art in Victoria's Yarra Valley until July the 10th. 
This is The Art Show. You're on Radio National with me, Daniel Browning. Off the southern coast of Iran, in the Strait of Hormuz, there's a commonly held belief that the wind can possess a person. It can also be exercised from them through dance and music. Photographer Hoda Afshar was drawn to this windswept landscape and its ancient people for her latest project, Behind the Lens. She took me through her studio in the lead-up to her exhibition, Speak the Wind. Thank you so much. This is a test print for my upcoming show at the Monash Gallery of Art that opens as part of Photo 2022 Festival of Photography in Melbourne, now. And um, I'm currently uh, test printing. Um, This is all from my project, my most recent project called Speak the Wind, that I published a book of um, with Mac Publishing in London last year. And now we are translating the book into a big, giant exhibition at MGA. And we're, we're looking at a, I believe it's in the Straits of Hormuz, an island, yeah. and, and wind is very important. Yes, uh, this is shot over five years in, um, as you mentioned, in the Strait of Hormuz in Persian Gulf, in my home country, Iran. And um, it's the story of uh, a possessing wind that has traveled to the region from East Africa. And uh, the belief uh, was uh, brought to the region through the um, slave trade, Arab slave trade for uh, that was, you know, going on for more than 13 centuries in, in the country and only ended in 1927. And the story uh, for me is multidirectional, has multiple aspects. And, uh, you know, the, the challenge was to photograph the, the invisible wind. I mean, obviously you went there, you photographed it. Just describe that. The landscape, it, it looks kind of, uh, people always say this, it looks kind of lunar. Yeah, yeah, it's actually like quite otherworldly and that's what really drawn me towards the project uh, initially, like the beauty of the landscape, it's a strangeness and, you know, the connection of people and to the land and how um, the identity of the locals is determined and identified by by the landscape that you see, the connection between the two was quite fascinating to me. But then also, like, it, ha- it has all these other elements that uh, my practice is very much engaged with, which is dealing with uh, questions of representation. And in this context was, you know, the relationship between photography and ethnography and how often historically photographers treated these landscapes and places and people as raw material when it comes to these kind of places and how I wanted to use... um, my camera in a different way and um, in some ways um, reverse the power dynamic that exists there. So a lot of it is performative and staged again, like is uh, an element performance that I use a lot in my work. Uh, The camera is treated by the locals as um, the possessed object and possessed patient. And a lot of it is, yeah, performance for the camera. And um, then uh, it also has multiple chapters of black and white and color images that basically, like to me, it's like living with the ghost of history 
everyone believes that the islands are haunted by by the wind and the wind uh, represents the history of cruelty and slavery to me in the region which is something that i feel uh, very much like connected to what we experience here in australia in some ways we are uh, possessed by the history of colonization and um yeah that's that's what i was trying to bring into the work without having a very rationalized or um, d determined narrative it's just an experience and I'd like to see how people respond to it. And the wind is, the wind carries and can possess an individual. Yes, absolutely. I, I invited the, um, an um, anthropologist, Australian anthropologist Michael Tausik to write an essay uh, for the book which is at the beginning of the book and he brings all these different narratives of the wind that they, they exist in you know uh, world literature that talks about you know the characteristics of the wind and wind has always historically carried histories with it and um, yeah uh, the, the wind possesses people they fall ill in the islands and um, for them to, um, you know, find peace with the possessing wind, they just have to go to the shamans who are always of, uh, fam you know, African descent. And they, they, the shamans are called Babaza and Mamaza. And um, it has to, like, it's like generation after generations of shamans, they have to be trained and also they all have to be possessed themselves as well. They speak different languages from Swahili to Arabic to Farsi and French and because depending on where the wind is coming from, the wind speaks a different language. And I've been, I sat through a lot of those rituals and ceremonies and I saw it for myself and... Um, the process that you go through, you know, in your mind when you experience that and you're there is just, it's interesting how as modern individuals going there, uh, we, we tend to find ways of rationalizing these experiences. And everyone like always like there's these conversations that maybe it's depression and they think it's a spirit possession, maybe it's this and that. But at some point, you really have to give up on that idea because to the islanders, the primitive, um, like we are the primitives because we um, city people, modern people, lost the ability to engage with the world and to engage with its different layers or energies. And they, they, they do laugh at us, you know, in some ways. So I did I didn't want to make a work that is like uh, has any form of intention to to tell the story or tell the story in a way that is justified. It's more about you know uh, treating magic as the, as real, and that's what I tried to do in the book. And creating moments too. I mean, you can't possibly tell a story that is that deep, really, in in any set of images. But you've created a. Well, I've seen the film, these beautiful moments of, you know, reverie and stillness and colour and possession indeed. And you, we talked about how the relationship between the photo photography as a mode of communication which objectifies the person, the subject, and of softening that relationship, you know, the, you talked about the relationship with ethnography. So for you, photography is about kind of interrupting that historical, those historical relationships, finding a new way to deal with a subject. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, one of my favorite writers who writes on, um, you know, photography and its history is Ariella Azule and how she talks about, you know, the imperial language of shutter. And she says it's inherent in, in the medium. And that's how it's been established. And for us as photographers to work with the medium, I think now that we have this knowledge, it's really important to unlearn that and how you want to do that. It's something that, as you said, is very important to at least soften those, you know, existing inherited violence that exists in the in in the process of image making. Often, you know, when you point uh, a camera at someone, it's more like you're pointing your gun at them. There's this kind of feeling often, especially when you when you don't know the person or you go before, like for photographers, it was always, you know, uh, feeling that they have full authority over the subject, especially when they go to places like that. And so I'm very, very much conscious of that. And that's why the time element is really important in my uh, image making process. I tend to return to the places and first develop a knowledge through the oral histories that I receive from people and also build up a trusting relationship with the people that I make work with before, you know, doing that. So we're looking at it. There's a board over here with um, some very neatly ordered notes, you know, notes, <laughs> notes to oneself. Uh, I don't want to say post-it notes, but, you know, all the stuff that's coming up and how just how busy you are. It's so good to be able to kind of get you in your studio. Um, but your whole year's laid out, pretty much. Yes, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't think uh, sometimes when you feel really stressed out and exhausted, um, I always have to remind myself that this is a dream life, um, you know, as an artist to live and um, to be able to make and share and be busy with doing what you're really passionate about. So I can't really complain. It's very busy time, but I'm very much excited about it too. You also suggest that the people are hungry for the visions of Hoda Afshar. They want to see the things that you're imagining. No, I mean, it is a, it's a thing. And like there, there may be a time when people aren't interested. <laughs> you, know? I'm, you know, it's the same for me. Sometimes I'm like, why well, I'm getting all these things to offers to do this thing and that. I'm just like, well, I better take it because there'll be a time when no one will Give, you know, Absolutely. care. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's just like the part of the journey of all um, artists or creative practitioners. It's just how to um, remain, you know, engaged and interesting and um, uh, remain curious about the world and continue making work and then um, share it with the world. But as you said, there's always an expiry date to everything. So while it lasts, just embrace it yeah. strike while the iron's hot can we have a look at the the video work speak the wind all righty this is like a draft of the uh, the film two channel video installation that will be um showed for the first time at mga in april um this this is not a perfectly crafted sound design version but it gives you a sense of the ritual that the section that is about the ritual <laughs> So this figure here, the moving figure in the, in the green um, cloak, 
is actually in 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 possession. Is being possessed, and the drums are, I guess, teasing that possession out, or teasing that spirit out, or communicating with the spirit. Yes, um, they have um, uh, twelve different songs of for twelve different types of wind that possess people. They come with different names. For example, Dingyamaro is one of them that is a very dangerous one. Or uh, this was the song for Sheikh Shangar, which again is a very aggressive wind. And what they do, they bring the patient into the room, they play drums, the drummers sit around and they play drum all day, they burn incense and they wrap the patient in a fabric, uh, a cloth, which is the green cloth you're seeing here. And they keep playing all different songs till the body starts dancing to one. And once the body dances or responds to one of the songs, that's how they know which wind has possessed you. So they know what that type of wind requires to leave you alone. And that's how they treat the patient, yeah. It's just extraordinary, this work. And so there's a book, there's the film, there's also the still photographs. Yeah. So it's a... I guess it's an immersion in an experience. Yes, yeah. that's what we're. Uh, I'm hoping for at MGA that people, when they walk in to see the show, they they walk into an experience, like more like a um, you know merging dream and reality together. We're hearing the original sound that you recorded. You were behind the camera or underneath a. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I asked the shamans to, um, tr as, as I said, like I took the camera there and I was asking them to do the performance for the camera because you can't actually take a camera to the real uh, ceremony. So we negotiated it beforehand and then I asked them to treat the camera as the patient. So we had to put the camera under the fabric when we were filming it for some, some of the scenes. And I was hiding under the fabric too to have control of the camera. And then um, I remember it was 45 degrees, like hot. And the islands are in general very hot. And um, yeah, I was like really sweating and holding um, the camera and watching the ceremony and move around with it, which was quite an incredible story, like experience. And they were laughing at me. They were like, you're mad. You're most probably possessed too, and you don't know it. <laughs> and when you're shooting, like moving, when you're shooting film, I guess you're probably thinking with your still photographer eye, looking at everything as a still. Is that the case? I mean, oftentimes you, you know, you're too hot or you can't, you, you're kind of too busy trying to get to where you need to be, like to, yeah. to some of these locations. Yeah, um, I think like uh, this is the third film um, I've made. And um, when I look at the films I've made so far, they're very photographic and all the frames are because, you know, I've been trained as a photographer and been only working with the medium of photography for the last, I don't know how long, since 2002. I do want to change that, but there's something about it also that I don't resist, you know, like I've been trying to move the camera more and pan and like this, but at the end I always end up choosing the shots that are quite still. And What's next? I mean, your, your board is full, you know, your dance card, as it were, you know, you've got so much on this year and you know, Speak the Wind is just one um, of many things. Uh, there, there's one big uh, project in development that I 
am not allowed to share still about it's always like, the way it's going to be shown but it's it's a project that for the first time I w- I'm working with an ar- archive and archives are interesting I mean in terms of you know the representation of women in the veil of the re- representations of the veil itself in kind of western Western art and in, 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 I guess, Western photography. But you're working with someone else, in a way, he's long dead, yeah, yeah. a French guy. We won't say what his name <laughs> is. But, you know, he was, he was also... A cap- savage intellect, I call him, a savage intellect, yeah. But he was captivated by yeah. the veil and the fold and became very much a big part of his life. So, but it's working with other people's stuff, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The project initially started off uh, um, with another kind of broader book on the matter, which was which is called um, the Colonial Harem, and it looks at the period where the French photographers were sent to. Algeria and Morocco when it was colonized by uh, France in the um, 1800s and then they sent as usual like when um, the colonizers were discovering a so-called new world or taking over they were sending artists scientists and photographers after the invention of photography uh, to study the people of the new world as species which is something that happened exactly the same here in Australia with the First Nations people they they were fascinated by the idea of the harem in you know Algeria and Morocco and Islamic cultures and the women inside the harems and they fantasized those women as sensual and uh, you know basically um, objects of desire and the photographers were really excited about taking pictures of the women slaves of the harem basically when they got there they realized that they can't get inside the harem and they get really upset and angry. They start setting up studios that they mimic the setup of a harem. They hire women, poor women on the streets and they pay them. They put the veil on top of their heads. It's just all this archive exists now and still the postcards are being sold um, on eBay, on the streets of Paris, everywhere. They basically impose a fantasized image of those women onto the body of these um, models, they got them to get naked, it's like showing their breasts but covering their eyes and heads and holding vase and you know and they bring those images back to Europe and turn them into postcards and distribute them around the world and uh, represent them as the real image of the women of Algeria and the Islamic world. And that image still lingers in the mind of the West, you know, the sensual, erotic woman that is suppressed and uh, the contrast between the two, and they, they need to be liberated by the white men of the progressive world. So that was initially what got me really looking into the project and then I came across this figure that went one, one step even further inside, uh, he took photos of himself inside the veil. He um, just made that colonial fantasy, turned it into the real thing and photographed himself in it. So I'm working with his archive. Can't wait to see it. Hoda, thank you so much for showing me around your studio. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and to see what you're working on. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a joyful conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Hoda Afshar, Speak the Wind is published by MacBooks. You'll find links to it on the Art Show program page. And Hoda's exhibition is on now at the Monash Gallery of Art in Melbourne. 
until June the 26th. It's part of the Photo 2022 Festival. Daniel Browning with you. You're listening to The Art Show on Radio National. If I asked you to name an iconic series of paintings in 20th century Australian art, what would come to mind? Maybe Sidney Nolan's Ned Kelly series, or perhaps Arthur Boyd's Brides. These are the works many learn about at school. But in the same period of Australian art, another series of highly accomplished, psychologically intense paintings was made that's nowhere near as well known. They're by Erica McGilchrist, based on her experiences teaching art in the early 1950s at Kew Mental Hospital, as it was then known. In the final instalment of our series, looking at Australian women artists who deserve to be household names, producer Georgia Moody looks at Erica McGilchrist's story and her artistic legacy. When I searched for Erica McGilchrist in the ABC archives, lots of material turned up. Cut one from Radio National Morning of the 2nd of September 1986. Interview with Erica McGilchrist, NZD. All of the stories were about Erica's involvement with the Women's Art Register, an organisation she co-founded in the 1970s to advocate for women artists. Well, it started quite simply with a, a group of women artists who came together as a result of a visit to Australia by Lucy Lippard, the American art critic and feminist. And in the beginning, artists donated slides of their work to the register, and that got it started. And at the moment, we have two main ways... It was fascinating, but there was barely any mention of Erica's own artistic practice. To find out about Erica's art, I tracked down this curator... Hi, my name's Linda Short. I'm a curator and art historian. I currently work at the State Library of Victoria in Melbourne. And prior to that role, I was a curator at Heidi Museum of Modern Art for many years. And that's where I was introduced to the work of Erica McGilchrist. She was born in South Australia, in Mount Gambia, in 1926. She had a great talent for drawing and painting from an early age and she enrolled in weekly art classes at the South Australian School of Arts from the age of 10. But parallel to her interest in art, Erica had a love of dancing as well and it was really dance that brought her in touch with Adelaide's more progressive arts community. Her love of modern dance brought Erica to Melbourne in 1947. But it wasn't long before she moved back towards visual art. She really became focused on painting when she started classes at the Melbourne Technical College. And one of her teachers was the painter Alan Warren. And he seemed to really encourage Erica's experimental approach. So he taught her lessons in abstraction and more expressive techniques than those she'd studied at the School of Arts and Crafts in South Australia. And it seemed to chime with those new styles of dancing that she was also learning. So both were allowing her to be um, consciously kind of progressive and modern. So eventually the demands on her time meant she she felt she had to choose between dance or painting and she decided to pursue a career as a painter. And I I think there were many contributing factors, but 
Overall, she felt she could sustain a much longer career as a painter. By 1953, Erica was very much part of the contemporary art world in Melbourne. I guess you could say she was starting to develop a professional network. So artists like Marka Mora and Charles Blackman and Arthur Boyd, and their work was having an influence on her direction as an artist as well. And at the same time, she was invited to give classes at the Kew Mental Hospital, as it was known then. And she was running weekly classes for a small group of patients who were mostly women. She did seem uncertain about the value of those classes for the patients, but she did recognise that the experience was one that was incredibly rewarding for her and it significantly influenced the direction of her art as well. So at that time, she began a series of paintings that were reflections of her experiences at the hospital and they're based on scenes that she witnessed there and that remained very firmly in her mind. My understanding is that there were six paintings in the series. It was the first time that Erica had actually worked in that way. And I think that would have been an influence of some of her peers like Arthur Boyd and the work she was becoming aware of by Albert Tucker and Sidney Nolan as well. They were working in a sort of serial manner, creating narratives across a number of paintings, and Erica did something quite similar. Only four of the paintings are now, the whereabouts of them are known, so I haven't seen the other two. And one that has become probably one of her most well-known paintings is called The Airing Court, and it's in the collection of Heidi Museum of Modern Art. And it shows a female patient in the outdoor area where patients would be gathered together when their behaviour was considered unmanageable and there, were, there weren't staff to assist them. The patient is viewed behind a sort of cyclone fence. It's an incredibly kind of confronting and powerful work that's sort of full of humanity as, as the whole series is. And another work that remains strongly in my mind is called Face in a Mirror. And it shows a woman who Erica explained would be left alone for long periods of time and would start to have conversations with herself and with her reflection in the mirror. It is a really notable feature of the series that it solely focuses on women. I mean, such honest portrayals of female subjects by a woman artist was incredibly rare, very unusual at that time. It was a male-centric era of Australian art. And also to create a series of paintings about psychological trauma and mental illness was also quite a courageous standpoint, expressing this as a woman artist and through female subjects at a time when society was patriarchal and women who resisted the conventional norms of the time were often labelled as mad. And I think 
this series really shows that Erica was an artist who was prepared to take a more personal approach to what her art, what was important for her to express through her art rather than what was expected of her because of the time. Erica's Q series reflects her growing interest in politics and activism. And that interest only grew over the course of her long and varied artistic career. Her advocacy for environmental welfare became one of two kind of key driving forces in her art and her and her life from the 1970s onwards. So her work starts to reflect her involvement in lobbying for the protection of the environment, not only at a local level, but also she has this growing awareness of global conservation issues like pollution and climate change and urbanisation. And then the other driving force that enters her life is women's rights. So by 1975, she had dedicated herself to feminist issues in the arts and went on to co-found the Women's Art Register in Melbourne. And that really became the focus of her career right through to the last painting, when she made her last painting in 1995. Over the span of her career, Erica moved between figurative works and abstraction. She made murals and textiles and designed everything from beautiful trams to postage stamps. But she doesn't have a recognisable aesthetic. Her artistic style changed a lot depending on the subject matter. Erica thought that this was one of the reasons why she didn't receive the recognition she deserved. She did feel that that varied artistic style was a contributing factor to her struggling to find gallery representation and also regular opportunities for exhibiting her work because she didn't have an identifiable style. When you look across her artistic output, when you understand the work, there's always something linking each piece to the next. But on an aesthetic level, the works could be made by a different artist. So even though she stood by that choice, she did feel that it could have had a sort of negative impact on how her work was received. As well as her kind of diverse artistic style, what about the fact that she was a woman? Do you think her gender played a role in the kind of attention and respect that was given to her artwork? Absolutely. I mean, like many women artists of her time and those before her, she hasn't received the same public recognition as her male peers. Her Q series was painted around the same time as Arthur Boyd's Bride series. And, you know, it's sort of a case in point that, well, he is a household name and that series of works is so well known and has been exhibited throughout Australia, whereas Erica's Q series is still incomplete <laughs> and has been exhibited in only a few, a handful of Australian arts organisations. So I think that speaks volumes, really, about the sort of gendered nature of art. Listening to those archival interviews with Erica... Something tells me she would agree. 
women have not been included in the history of art as they haven't been included in the general history. People who have status and power are the people who have been the recorders of history. That, of course, leaves out not only women, but it leaves out other minority groups. You could very well ask what history would look like if it was written from the point of view of any of those groups. It would certainly look very different. Erica McGilchrist's archive is now in the collection of the Heidi Museum of Modern Art in Melbourne. Linda hopes that other curators and researchers will delve into that archive to celebrate Erica's art and her achievements. They're kind of hard evidence of more than 30 solo exhibitions in Australia and Germany and London, more than 100 group exhibitions in Australia and overseas, and all of those commissions in the performing and graphic arts. So, I mean, I guess these papers just open the way to redressing her omission from most historical accounts of 20th century Australian art because her legacy extends way beyond what's purely visible in the artworks that she's left behind. Her actions during her lifetime have set up opportunities for artists in the future. So I think all of these contribute to her legacy and really signify what was a remarkable life that was lived with courage and real commitment. Curator and art historian Linda Short speaking about Erica McGilchrist. Know her name. That story was produced by Georgia Moody and it's the final in our series, Know My Name. You can find all of them in previous Art Show episodes. And soon you'll find them in a collection front page. That's it for the show this week. Our producer is Rosa Ellen. Thanks as always to RN's Sound Engineers. Don't forget, you can follow us on the ABC Listen app. And why not take a look at the ABC Arts Instagram feed for updates about this week's art show. I'm Daniel Browning. I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.